and welcome to the latest Tebby podcast brought to you by Regis Media. I'm Robin Powell. If you're interested in evidence-based investing and how the financial industry really works, you've come to the right place. Our guest on this episode is Jeff Patak, who is Global Director of Manager Research at Morningstar. Jeff, welcome to the Tebby podcast. Robin, thanks so much. It's great to be here. So, first of all, perhaps you could explain what that job title means. What do you actually do? Sure. So, I head up essentially all of the research that we conduct on managed investments globally. And managed investments, what does that mean? It's, it's typically investments that take the form of mutual funds, ETFs, or their equivalents elsewhere in the world. So it could be a use, it's a CCAV, what have you. But essentially it's where you're pooling assets and it's being professionally managed by an entity. And so it's our analyst job and they number more than 100 globally to, to evaluate uh, the merits of those particular investments and the, the organizing principles for their research are people, process, performance, parent, and price. Um, and they go through their progressions and that culminates in a rating that they assign. So that, that represents a very large chunk of what our, what our group does. And so I work in close concert with our analysts to make sure that they're doing you know, the best job of, of rigorously independently evaluating the investments that uh, are under coverage. How important a part of Morningstar's business is research? I mean, you've, you've clearly got a, a multifaceted business. How important is the research element? I think it's quite important. I, granted, that probably sounds a bit self-aggrandizing, but it, it's important in the sense if you were to look at our mission and the values that animate everything that we do. I mean, one of our most important, I think our most important value is investors first. And, you know, when you put investors front and center where they belong, what it means is trying to provide them with information, uh, including research that leads to better investment outcomes. And so in that sense, research is very much central to our mission and therefore diverse as our company has become uh, still a, a very, very pivotal part of what we do. Um, it's also important in terms of who it is we try to, what it is we try to stand for in the marketplace, independence, objectivity, I mentioned you know, we aspire to rigor in our work. And, and so if we don't have a vibrant research group at the center of the firm, uh, we can't uphold that value. We can't do what it is we set out to do. So, so research still plays a very important part in, uh, in what Morningstar does. We're very often asked at the blog, you know, what is evidence? You know, what research are you actually talking about? And, and our answer to that is normally that we're talking about academic research. And we're normally quite skeptical about um, uh, research that comes from organizations who have some sort of connection to the industry. But there are organizations, and I'm not, not just saying this to be polite, but there are organizations like your own, like S&P Dow Jones Indices, for example, who clearly do apply real uh, rigor to what they actually do. Um, so, so how careful are you that the research you produce is you know absolutely 100% genuinely the truth, if you like. Uh, we expend enormous energy and resources to make sure that any research that we stream out is independent, objective, and very rigorous. Uh, of course, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, so to speak, and so anybody who consumes that research is going to form their own judgment about how independent, objective, and rigorous and incisive it really was. 
but you know, really our model is built on our independence and making sure that there's nothing that compromises the integrity of what we do. There's a strict separation between the business side of the house and the research side, which is where I sit. And so what it means is that nobody, a salesperson, a senior executive, should be intruding on the research process and how it is we're drawing conclusions on the merits of investments. That's our model, and that we've only had that model since the company was formed back in 1984. Um, and the reason it's our model is because we think that's the epitome of investors first, and we think investors first is a winning business model. And so, uh, and so that's why the research that we stream out is, is held to the standards that it's held to. Now, as you and I know, uh, in choosing funds, investors and, alas, many advisors have historically uh, attached greatest uh, emphasis, if you like, to past performance. Now, you've done quite a lot of research on this uh, subject as an organization over the years. Can you tell me from your point of view, from Morningstar's point of view, how important is past performance? Well, so I, I think... In practical terms, it's important in the sense that investors are attracted to it. As we know, whether we're talking about the media or, or the investing public, they tend to attach quite a bit of significance to past performance. The question is whether that's a prudent thing to do, and I think that the evidence suggests that it's not. And why is that? It's because past performance tends to be mean reverting. And so what we tend to pay attention to, what attracts notice, in the media and more popularly uh, among investors is that which is done well. And that which is done well tends to revert lower. And so that, that's the paradox that we face as investors is that the things that tend to speak to us the most, that signal to us the most, um, you know, to which we're likeliest to, to succumb to impulse, you know, are, are probably the likeliest to mislead us because they revert lower over time. Um, and so I think that past performance, it can play a role in a selection process, but you have to be careful to calibrate it appropriately. Maybe it's a starting point for you when you're setting out to conduct research, but it shouldn't govern the way you make a choice. It, it should simply maybe color it in certain ways, and it should be sized appropriately. So as I mentioned before, we have five elements of the research that we conduct, and performance is one of those elements. But it's a very small element to that. What we really stress with our analysts who are going out and evaluating managed investments is, let's focus more on the things that we think are durably repeatable, like the prudence of the process, the depth, breadth, and continuity of the people, the shareholder friendliness of the parent organization, and then very, very importantly, the price. Uh, it has to be priced competitively, because one of the things that we've seen, if there's anything that's endured, it's the importance of price. And certainly our research has suggested that price is if not the most predictive variable, certainly uh, close to it. We've, we've tested just about everything, and, I, and we're not alone in that. There are many academics and others in industry who, you know, they look for that holy grail, the thing that's going to predict future performance. And so there's been a battery of different measures that have been tested. Most recently, there's been quite a bit of talk about active share and, you know, sort of a, a debate in the industry about whether it's predictive or not. Our research finds that it's not predictive of future performance. The one thing that we have found has a bit of signal to it is, is price. Price seems to do the best job of sorting future performance. And so I think that if an investor was going to fo could focus on only one thing, I think price is probably the place to go. It works both ways with active share, though, doesn't it? Because I suppose if you are going to go down the active route, if you do genuinely want to beat the market after costs, you're going to have to choose a manager who has conviction 
uh, and a, a reasonably uh, highly concentrated portfolio. But as, for example, uh, one of your uh, colleagues, Alex Bryan, produced a paper a, a few weeks ago, as he, he showed actually the more concentrated you are, uh, the, the more likely you are to underperform That's right. uh, the index funds o over time. Yeah, you're quite right. So uh, maybe going back to active share for a minute, for active share to be predictive of future performance, so there are two conditions that have to be satisfied. You have to be different and you have to be right. And so you can be different, that's, that's quite manageable. But being right, that's a different proposition. And so what tends to be lacking is the two together. And as we know, I mean, there's, there's a certain amount of courage one has to have to be truly different. Um, but then also you have to have the requisite skill to choose the correct investments that are outside of your benchmark. And that's proven to be too daunting a task to many managers, which is why in many of the studies that we've conducted, we found active share is not terribly predictive. With respect to Alex's research, which I agree is quite good and interesting, he, he did indeed find that there was an inverse relationship between correlation and future performance. Essentially what he found is more diversified equity portfolios tended to perform better than their more focused, concentrated counterparts over time, which kind of turns some of the literature on being different, which concentration is a proxy for, on its head. You know, you, you would think that if you're more diversified, maybe you're more benchmark-like and therefore less likely to outperform. Uh, but what, what Alex actually found is those most, more diversified portfolios tended to do better over time than their more concentrated uh, brethren. I don't particularly want to go into the active uh, passive issue you're probably relieved to hear uh, but, uh, the the active passive barometer that you that you run maybe you could just say a few words about that sure sure happy to so the active passive barometer is a report that we put out on a periodic basis and what it's really designed to do is to help investors set expectations about you know maybe the likelihood that an active strategy will outperform over a given period of time and where perhaps it's been more fruitful to invest in active strategies. So essentially what we're doing is we're, we're going through our database and we're tallying up the number of active funds of different types that have managed to outperform a benchmark um, or an investable index fund that's representative of its style. Uh, over some period of time, it could be one, three, five, ten, or 10 years or, or even longer. Um, you know, and, the, and the, the findings have been rather sobering for, for active funds. Uh, what we find is that the clear majority of these funds uh, aren't able to be a, a relevant proxy, uh, like a benchmark or an index fund or ETF that's representative of their style. They fall a bit short. Um, and why is that? I mean, there's a variety of reasons for that, but probably the chief reason is the fact that they can't overcome their cost hurdle. Um, it's, it's too much for them to surmount and therefore they fall a bit short of their benchmark over time. One of the principles underlying the kind of passive investing uh, approach, if you like, is this idea of the, uh, the zero-sum game. And uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the 91 paper by William Sharp in, in which he talks about you know, a universe of passive investors and a, a universe of act, active investors, and the return before cost must be exactly the same. But after costs, the passive investor, the average passive investor, must win. That's right. Now, you've actually done some research quite recently that actually suggests that the zero-sum game might not be quite as kind of cut and dried as that, at least in the United States. Explain that. That's right, yeah. So we took a look at the performance of 
active equity funds, and basically what we did is we, we calculated an asset weighted average. So you take together all these stock funds and, and you take into account their net assets over time and you basically make an assumption of how the average dollar performed. And, and so what we found, and, and I conducted the study to my surprise, is that that average dollar actually outperformed uh, a benchmark before fees. Uh, but it's those last two words that, that are the important <laughs> clause before fees. What you find is that once you bring fees into the equation, it more than consumes the excess returns that were generated. Now, I think that somebody who's a student of the zero-sum literature and believes in that would be asking themselves, how is it possible for it not to be zero-sum? Why wouldn't it zero out? I mean, there's a few potential reasons for that, but probably the likeliest explanation is that the mutual fund industry is but a subset of the broader equity market. So it could be that professional investors, that is, U.S. equity mutual fund managers, are skilled in aggregate and they're trading with weaker hands in the market. But the practical problem is that once we pay those skilled active managers, there's not much left for the investor, their clients. And so that's the paradox for active investing is that you can be quite skilled by some measures, but if the proposition isn't enough to leave something extra for the investor, you're not gonna have much to show for your efforts at the end of the day. And that's what the literature and certainly our research tends to find. So, so unless, you know, effectively you're, you're going to have a, an active manager who's willing to work for nothing or <laughs> work for a, for a significantly lower fee than they currently do, um, you know, you, you're going to lose that in the end because of the, because of the costs. That's right. I mean, I, I think that there are some things that active investors can consider doing, including lowering their expenses or uh, adopting performance-based fees that are properly structured that maybe give them a bit more of a chance to exploit some of the skill that perhaps they could offer. Um, you know, but right now, uh, the present state, uh, I think that, that many active strategies are priced to fail. Now, of course, fund fees have been falling. As, as you know, uh, the biggest falls have actually been in the passive side and the passive funds were already very much cheaper anyway. But we have now started to see some active fund fees coming down. And intuitively, um, you would think that falling fund fees would make cost less of an issue now going forward. Right. But actually, you've again done some research on this and actually you found the opposite, I believe. That's right. So what we found recently is that despite the fact that fees are falling and therefore converging towards a common point, that being zero, um, they are looming even larger in explaining performance differences between funds. So maybe it makes sense for me to back up and explain it. The reasoning here is that one, one of the chief explanations for why one fund performs better than another fund is the expense disparity between them. And so if we can posit the argument that in the past there was a wider range of expenses, then it stood to reason that costs played a significant role in performance differences between funds. It's one of the reasons why cost works as well as a predictor as it's done. But if costs are converging towards a common point, that being zero, the question for me became, are they gonna be as good of a sorting mechanism as they were? And, and essentially what we found is it's just the opposite. That They haven't lost any of their predictiveness or at least significance in explaining performance differences. They loom larger. And the reason that is funds are performing more alike. 
Um, so the pre-fee performance difference between funds in a given category of a given style has actually narrowed. And so what that means, and it's narrowed more quickly than the expense disparities have narrowed. So essentially what it means is that cost differences are looming even larger right now than they had even in the past. Of course, a very big development regarding fund fees uh, recently has been the introduction by Fidelity of zero fee funds, uh, so-called free funds. Uh, what do you make of so-called free funds? And presumably, there's no such thing as free. You, you presumably have to pay somehow for the product that you're, that you're receiving. So maybe to the second part of your question first, so in this case, I mean, this is, this is a no-strings-attached deal that Fidelity is making available to prospective investors in these funds. So it, it, provided they're a retail investor, they can, they can invest in those funds and there's no further obligation for them to acquire another service. I think there's some question about whether through means like securities lending they would be able to make up uh, some of the fee revenue that they're choosing to forego. Um, I think the jury is out on that. The research that we have done suggests that securities lending um, it probably wouldn't be that significant, at least not to explain why they would go to zero on the fee. Um, but yes, it is a calculation that they're making, and the calculation is if we can uh, elicit demand for these funds and basically bring investors onto our brokerage platform, then we can avail them of other services that we offer. So maybe we bank them, Maybe we wealth manage them. Uh, perhaps there's lending services of various kinds that we can make available. There's an entire constellation of services as a big brokerage uh, that, that Fidelity offers and other firms like them offer. And so really that's the calculation here is that they can, they can bring more investors into their orbit and commercialize it. It's a loss leader effectively. It's like, it's like charging, I don't know, uh, 20p for a pint of milk, but you want them to come into the supermarket because you want them to buy more expensive items. Yeah, uh, there's no question that it costs something to run a fund, even something as scalable as an index mutual fund, and even for a player that's as well scaled as Fidelity, it does cost something. So yes, in that sense, it is a loss leader. And the final bit of research I'd like to ask you about is uh, a study you've done on uh, the size of the fund industry. Yeah. Um, and the good news is uh, that it's actually actually shrinking. And, and again, you and I know that that's good news, but a lot of people would think, well, surely the bigger it is, the more competition there is, the better. But just, just explain that. Yeah, so we, we took a look at, again, this is US equity funds and just the number of funds that are out there. And, and this is an industry that has dependably grown, the number of funds and the assets for that matter have grown, you know, interrupted by the occasional bear market. Uh, but even that hasn't been enough to arrest the trend. And what we've seen in recent years is that that trend has actually begun to reverse and through mergers and liquidations and also a dearth of new fund launches, we're starting to see the number of funds contract. And uh, I guess the argument that I posited in the piece, which is, I call it heal thyself. It's this notion that the industry needs to become more focused um, and to offer a more fairly priced proposition. And the only way that's gonna happen is if there's less product on the shelf. And so I think as they go through this process, granted it's wrenching for those who are in the industry, but I think it's probably long-term good for the industry and therefore the investor if there are fewer funds on offer and they're priced more reasonably, which I think as the industry shrinks, um, it probably you know, is, is an encouraging portent that those things will happen.
I mean, I'm sure most of our listeners will be familiar with this, but the, the, uh, the, the fund industry is absolutely huge. I mean, there are more funds than there are individual securities, and, and the turnover of products is, is absolutely huge as well. Maybe you could explain that. Oh, yeah, funds come and go. Um, you know, and I mean, that's going to be, there are some firms out there that are, that are quite disciplined and they don't succumb to impulse and, and bring out products at the first whiff of a trend um, or something that, uh, you know, they can sort of sink their fangs in and make some money from. Um, you know, but then there are other firms who have been less disciplined and have brought out products at the wrong time or are trying to appeal to many different instincts or imperatives that they believe are out there. And so the industry becomes a bit overgrown, and yes, so one of the consequences of that is that you see funds come and grow. I mean, it's not uncommon after a fund underperforms to see it merged or liquidated away. Um, I think that the landscape is changing, and firms, operators are having to be more disciplined in thinking about what they're good at or what they aspire to be good at. Uh, and therefore what products to bring out. And that explains why we're seeing some of the slowing of growth that we've seen in recent years and some of the contracting and consolidating that we have seen. But yes, one, one of the defining features of the fund industry has been its dynamism. The fact that you've seen funds launched and mothballed on a very regular basis, that's gonna continue for some time now, um, you know, until the industry has, has concentrated to an even greater degree. So, so finally, you're, you're yeah. back to Chicago to, to tomorrow, I understand. Yeah, you, right. you've, you've been here in, in London this week. Uh, what, what have been your impressions of, uh, I suppose, where we are as an industry in, in Europe and in the UK compared with, 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 with the US? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I had to place, for instance, the European market uh, in sort of a global market mm -hmm. context, I would say that probably a little bit behind what we've seen in the U.S. in terms of some of the trends forming, but, but they're very similar in the sense that there's a clear drive towards openness, towards transparency, towards enshrining a more stringent and demanding regulatory standard, and of course, there's a drive towards lower cost. Uh, we're seeing uh, you know, prodigious flows into passive products, not just in the U.S., but also increasingly here. Um, and so I think it speaks to some of these, these larger currents, um, you know, the, the enshrinement of a higher standard, openness, um, the move away from commission to fee-based, um, all of this is, it, it, all of these things I think are shared in common across the markets, but I would just say that probably this market is a little bit behind the U.S., let's say, uh, in terms of just how far along those trends have played out. That's certainly my uh, impression too. Well, Jeff, thank you very much indeed. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Thanks for having uh, me. For a fascinating conversation. And uh, that brings uh, us to the end of this episode of the Debbie Podcast brought to you uh, by Regis Media. If you want more information about Regis Media and its services to financial advisors, just visit the website, regismedia.com. So you've been listening to me, Robin Powell, talking to Jeff Patak, Global Director of Manager Research at Morningstar. Please do comment on what Jeff has had to say. And please, if you've enjoyed this discussion, why not write a review? Finally, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast yet, please do so. We're on both SoundCloud and iTunes. Thank you again to Jeff and most of all to you for listening. From me and our producers, Tina Vida and James Cresswell, Goodbye.